0: Do I have agency to choose my relationship to sensation, to thoughts, to emotions? Can I hold space for what arises and can I move from reactivity to responsiveness? And for me, that's inner freedom. And that's what meditation practices is cultivating, is that inner agency to choose how to be in relationship to whatever arises
1: Hello and welcome to Tricycle Talks. I'm James Shaheen and you just heard Lama Rod Owens. Lama Rod is an author, activist, and authorized Lama in the Karmakagi school of Tibetan Buddhism. In his new book, The New Saints, From Broken Hearts to Spiritual Warriors, he draws from the Bodhisattva tradition to rethink the relationship between social liberation and ultimate freedom. In the process, he pulls from the wisdom of the old saints of Tibetan Buddhism and black liberation movements. In my conversation with Lama Rad, we talk about why he believes the apocalypse is an opportunity for awakening, the power of connecting with our ancestors and unseen beings, why the new saint is not necessarily a good person, and how fierceness can be a form of awakened care. Plus, he reads a prayer from his new book. So here's my conversation with Lama Rod Owens. Okay, so I'm here with Lama Rod Owens. Hi, Lama Rod. It's great to be with you.
0: Thank you. Thank you for inviting me on. Uh, We're happy to have
1: you on. So we're here to talk about your new book, The New Saints, From Broken Hearts to Spiritual Warriors. So to start, I'll ask you what we always ask. Can you tell us a bit about the book and what inspired you to write it?
0: Right. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I think the first thing that I feel compelled to say about the book is that it's a very different book than what you may be used to. And I think people will say, oh, this is a Dharma book, and then they get their hands on it. And then after the first chapter the the prolog we'll say, oh, what did I get myself into? Can I return this book? But the New Saint, it really started coming to me right after my last book was published which was love and rage that came out right in the summer of the quarantine in 2020 of course afterwards the murder of george floyd right and then that's what made the book so popular you know it's just dealing with anger and activism right but in that kind of renewed period of activism and organizing around black lives I really started asking myself these same questions that I ask myself when things happen collectively. Like, what is my role here? What am I supposed to do as a Dharma teacher, as a person in this collective? And so this idea for a guide, a manual of of sorts, started really coming through and an articulation of the Bodhisattva tradition was what I got really strongly. I needed to talk about what it meant to be good to do good things, to try to get free, and to try to help others get free. But I couldn't just tell the same old stories again about the Bodhisattva. I couldn't go back into all that mythology that many people know from the tradition. So I said that there has to be something new. Of course, this phrase, the new saints, really came afterwards. Like, what does it mean to be a saint, (laughs) right? And how can I take that, this ideal... And really reinterpret it so it actually is about what's happening in the world right now. It's really about the contemporary experience of people and bodies in the relative in a world that seems to be really on the edge of something catastrophic. And how can I write this in a way that helps people to not just manage what was coming up for them around fear and anxiety, but really give people something that they can really work with in order to bring about a different future.
1: Very well said. With these crises, it can be so easy to slip into apocalyptic thinking. But you suggest that we are not experiencing the end of the world, but rather, quote, the end of some provocative and desperately enduring lies we have told ourselves. Can you tell us more about how you've come to view the idea of apocalypse?
0: Yeah, absolutely. You know, I think we misinterpret the, the meaning of the word apocalypse. When people are talking about apocalypse, what they're actually talking about is Armageddon. <laughs> you mm-hmm. know, like kind of armed conflict, war, global war, destruction of communities, and so forth. That's what people are really thinking about. But when we talk about apocalypse, you know, apocalypse is rooted within the study of theology. And the root meaning of apocalypse, I think coming out of the Greek, is really about unveiling, awakening, right? It's the energy, the action of pulling back the curtains and letting the light shine in. And if you're so accustomed to the dark... The light will be a a little hard (laughs) to, to deal with. And I think that's what's happening. The truth is being revealed. And we've been living in a kind of dark delusion for a very long time. And so for me, having said all of that, I think the apocalypse is about coming back into balance. But that rebalancing is really painful. It's an interesting
1: take on apocalypse. And it's one that I think makes sense. You also talk of our present crisis as a time of spiritual warfare, as much as it is one of political and social warfare. So can you tell us what you mean by spiritual warfare and how is this a spiritual crisis?
0: That phrase, spiritual warfare, was something I really had a lot of anxiety around, including in the text. And that's something that up until now, I would never actually use publicly. But for me, yes, like I can get really wrapped up in the political and social aspect of struggle in terms of systems and institutions that create harm. But because of my practice and because of my ancestry and just my natural inclination, I've been very concerned with the unseen and the impact that the unseen world is having on us and vice versa. And when I talk about the unseen world, I'm talking about this experience of ancestors and deities and spirits and formless beings who are still connected to this world and who I believe are impacting us in ways that we're not extremely conscious of, but there are those of us who are, right? And so for me, spiritual warfare is really about how do I use awareness and love and clarity? To bring a situation back into balance, and how do I develop a sensitivity to understand that I have to work between both the form world, the world of phenomena, and as well as the formless world in order to create the change that I most wish to see in the world?
1: You know, you anticipated my next question because <laughs> you suggest there are beings in the unseen world who want us to be free. I really yeah. like that idea, so its very it's a comfort too. <laughs> So what does it look like to ally with our ancestors
0: and unseen beings? Interestingly enough, this idea came from my study of abolition, of anti-slavery abolition, and how slavery anti-abolition was very deeply connected to spiritualism, to the spiritualist movement that was really beginning to happen in the Northeast, in New York, Boston, New York, some in the Midwest, also in Europe, where particularly Radical Quakers were getting involved in seances and and talking to the dead and working with mediums. And that became a huge cultural phenomenon. But what also began to reveal itself was that there were these beings in the unseen world, people who had passed on, who were actually really concerned with ending slavery. And they began to speak through these mediums and really began to inform anti-slavery abolition work. So from there, I was like, yeah, of course, freedom is really about working between these two realms. So when I talk about the, the unseen world, yeah, for me, I instantly think about my ancestors, these beings who are connected to me in some way. Not necessarily by blood or genetics, but beings who have chosen a kind of affinity with me based upon some shared characteristic. We're members of the same communities. Identity locations, of course, actual blood, familial beings as well. And they choose us as partners to support us and doing the work of liberation, because anything that we do to get free or to heal from trauma and from woundedness is also helping to free them because we share this kind of karmic, energetic relationship. And so when I connect consciously to my ancestors, I'm really connecting into a really powerful resource. And for me personally, that's transformed my practice and my work around the work of spiritual liberation. Absolutely.
1: So, you know, with that help, You put forth the
0: notion of the new saint. Mm -hmm. So what is a new saint? Mm -hmm. You know, the new saint is just a rethinking of what it means to be a bodhisattva right now. With a particular focus on justice, relative justice, and its relationship to ultimate liberation, with a focus on identity. So not bypassing the relative, but working skillfully with the relative. It is phrased and wrapped in language that I wanted it to appeal to young people. I wanted it to appeal to people who aren't necessarily Buddhist-identified, but who care about the world and who are interested in spirituality, but maybe have never felt like the spiritual paths that they've explored really offered a clear insight into the integration of social and ultimate liberation together.
1: Yeah, I think you are reaching young people because it was the young people in the office who said, James, you've really got to read this book. You've really got to read this (laughs) book. I have so many books to read. And I said, OK, I'll read it. Um, And I'm glad they did. So in describing the new saint, you draw not only from Buddhist understandings of the Bodhisattva, but also from the old saints who have influenced your path. And among them, the organizers and activists Fannie Lou Hamer and Audrey Lorde. Can you tell us about how you draw together the lineages of Tibetan Buddhism and Black liberation movements in developing the new saint?
0: I think for me, you know, the social liberators, ultimate liberators are actually two sides of the same coin, you know? And I think that, for instance, you know, these great activists and organizers like Fannie Lou Hamer, I think they were deeply connected into an ultimate expression to what they consider the divine. And they were pointing people back to that experience through the work of organizing folks and bringing awareness to systemic injustice, right? And I think that's the same thing for Harriet Tubman, for instance, who I identify also as a Bodhisattva, like who chose to incarnate as a Black enslaved woman in order to teach us what freedom actually really means and what it looks like. And who was also just deeply connected to what you know, we can call the ultimate source or the essence or to the divine or to the sacred. When I you know, think about my teachers in, in my tradition and the people that I've studied in Tibetan Buddhism, the, you know, the, the great saints from India and Tibet and so forth, I just feel like these beings in many ways were emanating as people like Harriet Tubman and Fannie Lou Hamer and Sojourner True or Malcolm X, or Dr. King, and Audrey Lloyd. Like, I just, I just don't, at this point, see any difference in between. They, both the Tibetan saints and these kind of social activist saints in Black liberation cared about people, and they wanted people to be free. That's it.
1: You say something that at first sounds provocative, but really it makes sense. Right, yeah. You suggest that the new saint is not a good person. So where is the difference between being a good person? You're very provocative sometimes,
0: plumber Rod, I like that. Uh, between being a good person and actually practicing goodness? Well, you know, I think it's important just to like, get really clear about what goodness is, right? Because I think that goodness can become an identity location where people just kind of stick themselves. And if you stick yourself in a place of just being a good person, It becomes really difficult to see where you're not practicing goodness, where you're actually creating harm. And I think that goodness can be really quite performative, particularly now in the age of social media. You can create a social media page that makes you look really good, (laughs) right? And can lead people to think whatever you want about how you're showing up. But for me, goodness is something that I'm choosing second to second. It's not something that I'm just Add and planted in so when i talk about choosing goodness in the moment or in the second i'm saying that i'm choosing the reduction of harm and violence for myself and against others moment to moment and that has to be active conscious engagement and so it becomes more like a process a continuum a verb is something that's always being negotiated is always being discerned right? It's never a place that I just go to and say, this is it. Every second is different. So I'm making different choices and understanding how to reduce harm in the moment. So you say
1: the work of the new saint is the liberation of all beings and phenomena. So how do you understand freedom and how does freedom differ from, say, justice?
0: You know, as I was writing the book, I really began to understand that, like, I'm much more into freedom than justice. And for me, justice feels like a stopping place, like happiness can feel like a stopping place in our practice. And you can get right into these things, into happiness, into equity, into justice, and say, okay, this is it. But we're still in this experience of delusion that we call samsara, but in the new things I call the carceral state. Which is this experience of delusion, of not being clear about what's happening and who I am. Freedom is like, let's disrupt, let's transcend all the roots, all the causes and conditions of suffering. And to return back to remembering who we are so we don't have to do this reality thing anymore. We don't get lost in this cyclical experience that we can relate to as the matrix, as a cultural phenomenon. But overall, this carceral state, which binds us through delusion, and we're policed by fear and doubt, and so many other things as well. So to transcend everything is my understanding of freedom to transcend duality and binaries to return back to a simple state of being where we just are. We are.
1: You just mentioned justice as a stopping point, and you wrote something that really resonated with me, but I don't want it to be misunderstood, so maybe you can explain it a little bit. Mm -hmm. It's not that we don't care about justice, but you write, We must give up on the idea of justice and commit to liberation, as some of our ideas about justice are not about complete liberation, but the illusion of universal comfort for all beings. Right. I thought that was very interesting.
0: Yeah, so again, my goal, my agenda, which I think is the same agenda of Buddhism, is to actually transcend all of this, this whole cycle. And if you go for that, like if you go for the goal of ultimate liberation, all this stuff is going to happen regardless. Right, justice is going to happen. Happiness, joy, comfort will actually happen as well as we're moving towards ultimate freedom. Don't just like aim for that. Aim for the very top, the ultimate liberation, and you're going to get everything. So if you go for everything, you're going to get everything. But I know going for happiness feels a lot easier, right? Or going for justice seems much more doable. But I'm asking people to think much more expansively about the nature of existence itself, which, again, this is what Buddhism is always asking us to do. Mm -hmm. You You write that
1: your first experiences of freedom came in church when you learned about Jesus and about the Exodus story. How did those experiences shape how you think about freedom
0: and abolition, and spiritual abolition in particular? Well, these were the earliest examples of freedom that I had growing up. I'm a Black man who grew up in North Georgia in a small Black community. I grew up in the Black church. My mother is a United Methodist minister. So these stories were quite potent for me and for a lot of Black folks growing up in this country. These are the stories my ancestors were given and offered and were allowed to study and think about. And we, my ancestors, deeply identified with Jewish people, like with the the ancient Hebrews who were being held by Egypt. And the Exodus, you know, when God delivered the Jewish people from captivity into wandering for 40 years until they found Canaan. But we, my ancestors, were like, no, we're praying to be delivered, you know, out of slavery, just like the Jews were. And that, for me, of course, is the foundation of liberation theology, and that became so important for me in terms of, like, really forming my understanding of spiritual freedom, spiritual abolition. In that way, everyone who is not free will be set free, and that it takes work, it takes prayer, it takes this work of connecting to the unseen, it takes trust and devotion, And the sacred are the divine. But if we can do that, then we will get free. And I still believe that. Even as a practicing Buddhist, this is a core belief. If I trust and have devotion in emptiness, which I often describe as God, you know, emptiness as God, as an expression of God, then, like, I will get free. It just feels like an attunement to how things actually are. Right.
1: You know, the work of the new saint happens on multiple levels, you say, outer, inner, secret, and super secret. So what does freedom look like on each of these levels, and how do these levels inform and support each other?
0: This outer, inner, secret, super secret, like these are just, this comes right out of Tantric Buddhism, or like these levels of knowing and understanding. Now, I wanted people to understand that there are layers here to this. Like ultimately, yes, it is the experience of being beyond dualism. But in the body, and the relative, it's going to look different ways. So outer freedom is like, yeah, what does it look like to live in a culture, and a society where I have agency to make choices about the resources that I need? Do I have agency to make choices about my body? Do I have access to the other resources that I need to be well, like food, clothing, medicine, and so forth? Can I choose, do I, do I have autonomy to choose my path that feels appropriate for me? Or is that dictated by other people and communities or, you know, whatever? So for outer freedom is this relative freedom where we have the agency to make choices about what we need. And then you start talking about inner freedom, and that begins to move into our experience of body and mind. Do I have agency to choose my relationship to sensation, to thoughts, to emotions? Can I hold space for what arises? And can I move from reactivity to responsiveness? And for me, that's inner freedom, right And that's what meditation practices is cultivating is that inner agency to choose how to be in relationship to whatever arises in my experience. And you get into secret, of course, that secret freedom is actually connecting to the state of freedom itself, which is emptiness and space and energy, right connecting to that fundamental experience because that's. Where we arise from. That is the nature of our minds and consciousness. And then, of course, the secret, the super secret experience is like, yeah, then we are, then we return back completely to this experience. So, the secret and super secret is really about remembering who we are. It's remembrance that I've gotten distracted through delusion and have gotten really attached to form. And now, I am actually letting go of form, letting form dissolve back into emptiness and letting this sense of self dissolve back into this nature of mind itself. And I just abide. And that's where I'm trying to get to, that, that simple abiding in a state beyond duality.
1: You know, if you ask somebody, do you want to be free? Everybody will say, yes, I want to be free. But you describe <laughs> what you call liberation pessimism. So why are we afraid of getting free?
0: When you start really wanting to get free, you start understanding that you're going to have to leave everything behind. And even in this moment, I think about Harriet Tubman, who escaped, you know, slavery, who left the plantation. And for me, that act of saying, you know what, I'm going to be free regardless of if I die doing it or not, you know? And I think that's what really scares people. It's like, what's beyond this choice of getting free? Because I know what everything else is, like I'm in the world, I have this identity, I'm a part of things, I have stuff that I like, but when you tell me that freedom is really the real goal, are you asking me to give up all of this? And what I am actually saying is that, no, I'm not asking you to give up anything, I'm asking you to transform your relationship to things. To actually remember that there is space and choice and agency and how I relate to everything. And if I can let go of the fixation, then I can reinvest energy and practice into this experience of who I really am, which is an experience, an expression of emptiness and space and energy.
1: Yeah, you know, another challenge in getting free is the loneliness of the work of getting free, which you talk about. So how have you learned to work with loneliness, and and what does it mean to you to choose
0: aloneness? I think when you choose freedom, it's a choice that a lot of people aren't making. And that really has come out of my personal experience, where I feel like I've been really misunderstood by people who care for me because I've chosen to work towards ultimate freedom. And that seems really foreign to people. And of course, one of those earlier decisions around getting free was entering three-year retreat, which everyone thought I was like completely out of it. You know, my family thought I was joining a cult. <laughs> you know? I like your take on cults. Yeah. <laughs> well, you know, in a way I was actually joining yeah. a, a cult, you know, but people just didn't get it. Like, why, why would you do something like that? And I would say, because I, I want to get free. So that's the loneliness. I think the loneliness of like a lot of spiritual practice, because you're doing something a lot of people aren't doing, even if you're in community, right? Even if you're in Sangha and so forth, there's still a level of loneliness, right? Because, yeah, we're working together, we're practicing together, we're supporting each other, but we still have individual experiences that can feel really isolating. You know, and we are asked to hold that and to, to still, in these moments of isolation, understand that like, we're still connected. We're still a part of things, but this has to be a personal experience because we individually have to consent to the work of liberation. It's not a collective thing. It's not just like you know, getting a bunch of people together and saying, okay, raise your hand if you're ready to get free. And you're like, I'm not going to raise my hand. I'll just let them assume my hand is raised. That's not, that's not how this works. We all have to say yes. And then those of us who say yes can form community together to support one another. But if some people are saying yes, or, and if some people are saying, well, I don't know, then that's going to create a kind of conflict that I think we see so much in our spiritual communities, but we haven't been able to name that this is the core of the conflict, that people actually have different agendas being here.
1: Right. You invoke Dorothy Day's concept of spiritual loneliness as the long loneliness. So, what are the particular challenges of spiritual loneliness as well as its opportunities? I mean, I know Sangha is a great thing, but even so, within Sangha, in the effort to get free, it can still be lonely. Yeah, yeah. absolutely.
0: And of course, Dorothy Day has been an extremely important impact, a person who has deeply influenced my work, you know, as a former member of the Catholic Worker Movement. And that being in the movement shaped so much of this work. But it really moved me when she wrote about The Long Loneliness, which is the name of one of her books. And she talked about this often, this solitariness, this aloneness. And so much of that for her was about doubt. Am I actually doing the right thing? Is this what God is calling me to do? But for me, you know, when I work with the long loneliness in my practice, for me, it's like, yeah, this is like this path of developing a deep intimacy with my own experience. And that gets real isolating because I'm trying to figure out exactly what this experience is. Sometimes out of the context of groups and communities, right, I have to know myself. And that means I have to sit with myself. And in meditation, I'm sitting with everything that arises, and that can be really exhausting and really isolating. But more and more, if we really commit to this kind of work, then we feel, in the same way I have, that you begin to experience a really profound, intimate connection with all beings. I would go further and say a connection to all phenomena. And so at this point, yes, I can feel the loneliness, I can feel the aloneness that I choose, but I have never felt so connected to all beings at the same time. And both of those experiences, I think, happen and will continue to happen up until we reach the threshold of ultimate enlightenment. And then, of course, you cross the threshold and you just let go of this illusion that you were separate to begin with.
1: Right, right. You say that spiritual loneliness means that you're touching into the formless expression of love, which takes you mm. out of a linear timeline. Yeah, Oh yeah. Can you say more about this? What does it look like to be taken out of linear time? I just interviewed Jenny O'Dell, the artist and writer who wrote Saving Time, Living a Life Beyond the Clock, and, and she very much responds to this notion of linear time.
0: Well, you know, time is just a concept. I know we hear that all the time. But for me, when I touch into this like non-linear nature of time, it's really this continuum is dissolved and the boundaries between the past and the present and the future all just kind of get dissolved. Which is really our consciousness, right? Once, once we let go of this kind of fixation to the sense of self, then we expand back into the boundless consciousness, which knows no limits, no time zones, no time limits or anything, right? And you're experiencing everything but once. Time is something that we're creating, right? And when we get really in tune into emptiness, it all dissolves. The sense of self that we're still clinging to is disrupted. Right. We, we think of time as this incremental
1: sort of commodified quantity that can be bought and sold, says Jenny O'Dell. And exactly. I think you're along those same lines. Exactly. Coming up, Lama Rod talks about the magic of the new saint, why he believes freedom is an act of surrender, and the importance of what he calls the four sweet liberations. For the past 32 years, Tricycle the Buddhist Review has been a leading source of Buddhist news, culture, and conversation. When you become a Tricycle subscriber, you'll enjoy quarterly issues, the print and digital magazine, plus so much more, including monthly Dharma Talk videos, film club screenings, virtual events, online course discounts, and access to our 30-year archive. Subscribe today for as little as $6.99 per month at tricycle.org slash subscribe. Now let's get back to our conversation with Lama Rod Owens. One of the things I really liked is you refer to the new saint's magic, which depends on two practices, the expression of awakened care and the development of our capacity
0: to disrupt habitual reactivity. So to start, can you walk us through what you mean by awakened care? Awakened care is my experience of bodhicitta bodhicitta is i would say the magic of the bodhisattva you know but we would traditionally define bodhicitta as the awakened hard mind so it's this view of deep connectedness this deep empathy that we're only doing the work of liberation not just for ourselves but for all beings when i am attempting to get free That labor is also helping others to get free. For me, that's the expression of bodhicitta. But when I began to think about this in terms of the new saint and this kind of reinterpretation of the whole tradition, I began asking myself, okay, what is my actual felt experience of bodhicitta? More than just awakened mind, more than this altruism that we're told to cultivate. And so the first thing I felt was love, this deep acceptance this deep holding space for everything, but also this wish for everyone, everything to be free. So that's the first thing I felt. I also experienced compassion, which is tuning into the suffering of both ourselves and the world and actually committing to freeing ourselves and others from suffering. For me, compassion is the action. Like I am doing this to get free from the causes and conditions of suffering because everyone's suffering and no one wants to suffer. And of course, the other piece of this is joy. I feel deep joy for having the capacity to choose benefiting beings through my practice. Like, I'm overwhelmed by that, right? And there's deep gratitude in that joy as well. And of course, everything is based in emptiness. So we have the capacity for all of this to happen because of the profound potential of emptiness and space. And so when all of this is streamed together or braided together, it begins to awaken care like a deep profound care the kind of care that says yeah i am going to do everything that i can to get free because so i care that much for myself and for others an important point here too is that like i have to care for myself enough to want to get free to begin with and a lot of us aren't there either like some of us really don't believe that we deserve to be free from suffering i think that's pretty common yeah and I know I had to get clear about that too. Not only did I have to choose freedom, I had to understand that I deserve to be free. But that's the first magic, this awakened care, which is you know an expression of bodhicitta. And of course, the second magic is moving from reactivity to responsiveness, right? Which is what we're trying to do in our meditation practice. is to name and notice what arises and then choose how to be in relationship to what arises. To accept and then to respond, not just habitually react. You know, Lama Rod, I, I have to say that when people pick up a
1: Dharma book, they're not going to expect to read about Paris's burning or the television series <laughs> Pose, although one of the actors in Pose, she is a Dharma practitioner. Yeah.
0: Angelica Ross, yeah, Angelica is definitely a practitioner, yeah. Well, that there may be others mm-hmm, who are practicing from that show that we're not aware of. Oh, Really? Yeah, well, mm-hmm. I wasn't
1: aware of that. But they also don't expect to hear about fierceness, but you liken yeah. it to the wrathful <laughs> expressions of tantric Buddhism. It's very playful and fun, but also yeah. meaningful. Yeah. And these are the most powerful forms of compassion. So how do you practice fierceness as a form of care?
0: Fierceness is an expression of wrath from Tibetan Buddhism. Wrath is an expression of just profound, direct compassion. It has nothing to do with anger. I think that's the misinterpretation of wrath outside of the tradition. Wrath is saying, this is what needs to be done, and this is what I'm going to do regardless of the impact. But not necessarily the impact, because... Practicing compassion in this really clear way will free people, but wrath means that there are consequences in terms of my relationship to other folks. And that's what you're risking. If you say something that you know needs to be said to someone, then the risk is that person will actually may hate you, right? And that's coming from personal experience as someone who's been the recipient of wrath, I have really struggled with feeling like I have survived some type of harm because it's something that I am desperately trying to hide, but needs to be revealed in order for me to experience some freedom. Mm -hmm. Of course, that's going to be met with a resentment. How dare you name this? But of course, my experience has been so much more freedom and openness from having that named without my consent. But in ways, if you're in a relationship with a teacher, then you're consenting to like that kind of Dharma transmission. I work with teachers because they tell me the truth about who I am and they point me in the direction I need to be going. And so I consent to truth being revealed about where I'm stuck, even though it hurts like hell.
1: Yeah, I've been nailed by my teachers plenty of
0: times. (laughs) Oh, yeah. A good teacher has to do that. A good teacher isn't there to make you feel comfortable. Again, a teacher, is, is, I think, is supposed to be helping you get free. That doesn't mean I like it, (laughs) you know, but it means I consent to it because I know that, like, this is the only way. Of course, you know, I feel that in my community and, like, in the Black, gay, queer, gender expansive community, there's a fierceness. Fierceness is really about surviving. It's wanting individuals to survive, it's wanting us as a collective to survive. So we go directly to the work that needs to be done. We say what we need to say, we do what we need to do, because that's what we have to work with in order to disrupt the impact of really systemic violence and transhistorical trauma. We have to get clear and cut through it, even though it hurts
1: again that fierceness is evident in paris's burning end in pose i was happy that you brought those into it because you know as silly as it might sound when you look at it that's precisely what it is fierceness it's very interesting but you write that awakened care can cause us to lose a sense of agency so that we're swept up in the agenda of the liberation of all beings and things can you say more about the loss of agency at play how is it that we surrender to the agenda of liberation
0: I talk about Tony Cabambara in that section as well. It's a kind of like profound awakening of something really evotic and profound. And that's why how I understand care. Like it's evotic, it's profound, it's dynamic. And what I'm trying to do is really, when I say lose myself, I'm trying to dissolve the sense of self in this awakened care. And that's going to get me into a quicker, more direct relationship with the essence or with emptiness itself. And I think in a way that we can describe that is really the cultivation of virtue. We practice goodness and that becomes a kind of pattern where we're choosing how to reduce harm moment to moment. And that becomes a a habit. We're just attuned to choosing what's reducing harm. And that, for me, is another way that we get swept up. We're reprogramming ourselves to choose what is conducive to liberation. And I want to get kind of lost in that. So like everything that I do becomes an expression of goodness and therefore this expression of virtue. I think the phrase you were looking for is,
1: I think, wanting to make revolution irresistible. Irresistible.
0: Yes, irresistible revolution. That's what, you know, Tony Kampenbauer was always doing, was to make this irresistible liberation. Like, it's just the sweetest, most important thing that we could ever be doing. And it just becomes what we do and who we are. And over time, I think, again, that's what happens. You know, I
1: think of the loss of agency in this sense, too, is as if we're losing ourselves, we're getting out of our own way in a very positive way. Mm -hmm. So one stream of awakened care is love. Mm -hmm. And you describe love as a form of surrender and profound acceptance. Can you say more about love as a loss of agency?
0: Well, love is, again, this kind of radical acceptance, you know, as Tara Brock, you know, talks about in her work. And for me, I realized that it's hard to change when you haven't really told the truth about what's actually happening. And so love, this first expression of love, is actually allowing ourselves to hold space for everything that's arising. It's just like, this is it. This is how it is. I don't have to like this. I just have to name it and notice it. I think what keeps us from doing that really profound radical loving is heartbreak. When I start telling the truth about how things really are, then my heart is going to break. Because I have been so concerned with telling myself narratives about how I want things to be in order to feel good about what's happening. So you let go of that and say, this is it. This is what's happening. And my heart breaks, which is just the experience of having to touch into this deep disappointment. And once I start doing that, then there's an honesty that awakens. And that profound holding becomes a love. Like, I get it. Like, this is what's happening. And therefore, I can make a choice to change what needs to change now. I'm not lost in these delusions and narratives about how I think things are. I know how things are now. It creates a deeper intimacy with all phenomena, all beings, because you're with the truth now. And you know that the truth is that, that, that everything, everyone deserves to be free.
1: I mentioned love, but another stream is joy. And you write that for a long time, you didn't believe you had a right to joy, just like you didn't have a right to beauty. So how have you reclaimed your capacity for joy? And how do you see it as
0: essential to liberation work? I think joy is a natural expression of our minds, right? As a state. I think joy is an experience that can connect us to this ultimate experience of bliss. I don't think that we can actually experience bliss in the body, but I think that is the state of our minds. When we've transcended all dualities, bliss is the state. But joy points me back as an experience that I can feel. And we need to connect to joy to hold the difficulty of the work of getting free you know i tell stories in that section and two you know just about how joy is used as a tool to help people do really intense social change work and we talked about agency too the agency here too is once you get connected to how things really are it's really hard to go back (laughs) you know it's hard to choose delusion once you have done the work to get clear the delusion is wrecked for you. Yeah, it's just like no, uh, you know, it's like you know, you've been driving a Hyundai your whole life, and then you find yourself in a Mercedes, and you're like, oh, right. <laughs> like why would I go back to a Hyundai? This is not to badmouth Hyundai, you know, but just to say, <laughs> just to use as an example, like you upgrade, and you're like, oh, okay, okay, this is, I get this. So you also say that you never felt like you had a right to beauty.
1: So part of the work of The New Saint is reclaiming beauty while also disrupting capitalism and overconsumption. So can you tell us a bit about what you call the Four
0: Sweet Liberations, which I found very intriguing? <laughs> That's, you know, I think one of my favorite chapters. That chapter really came out of my deep love for Andre Leon who was a fashion editor and journalist for many years one of the most recognized Black gay men in the fashion world, only Black man in the fashion world for many years. And he's someone that I deeply loved. But he passed about two years ago, and I wanted to help people to understand what he offered me as a Dharma practitioner. I considered him a teacher. I never met him in life. But he was teaching me about beauty. And this is where it gets confusing. He wasn't teaching me to like buy expensive things. But he was actually teaching me that like beauty was always accessible as an experience. That I didn't need to accumulate something. I needed to allow myself to surrender to being moved and opened by experiences. That's what I mean about this kind of like connecting to beauty. I didn't believe I had a right to experience the energy of beauty. But in this whole chapter, so beauty becomes one of these sweet liberations, along with leisure, opulence, and pleasure. These things that traditionally in Buddhist circles we're pushing away, we're saying, oh, these are poisons, we're not going to deal with this. But when we start talking about more tantric treatments of these energies, no, these are energies that are happening inside of me. So I want to be in relationship to these energies, and I want to embody these energies in order to open up these doors to emptiness itself through the practice of you know sympathetic joy which is experiencing something pleasurable and then wishing that everyone was experiencing this so it's not just about me accumulating and holding on to really great experiences it's about me giving away the good stuff every time i get it thinking about the collective and that more and more de the sense of self and opens up the experience of space and emptiness. This is what the Sweet Liberations are trying to do. They're grounded in Black, queer, and gender expansive life and culture. I talk about pose, and of course, Paris is burning quite a bit. But I wanted to write this chapter for people like me from my community who feel like there's no space for them in contemporary convert Buddhist spaces. Mm-hmm right now and this is for me a way that i've opened the door and say you no, know, this is a practice that comes i think directly out of tantric buddhism working with energy and embodying this energy to connect to emptiness itself and we can use our culture to do that our culture is full of wisdom that we can use to experience these higher states of freedom
1: yeah you talk about using the language of the people you're speaking with and uh, and i think that's very much what you did after all the buddha spoke. In the idiom of the day. Back to beauty for a second. Mike Love, you also describe it as an act of surrender, letting your guard down and expanding into the experience of the sublime. So
0: how can beauty help us access the sublime or transcendent? I was to speak for myself. I'm letting go of the ways in which I'm protecting myself and guarding myself. I'm allowing myself to expand. And when I say allowing myself to expand, I'm actually letting go of the sense of who I think I am. And then beginning to experience and touch into the actual expression of spaciousness. And when I do that, things get more fluid and more inviting. The world becomes less antagonistic, less rigid, less sharp, right? It becomes more translucent for me when I'm surrendering and opening. And that, that is the experience of the sublime. That translucent fluidity like, really is about connecting to you know, this ultimate experience of emptiness. You know, itself. But again, it's not about materialism. You know, I talk about wanting a BMW. That's something I've struggled with for years. I'm not trying to look good. I'm not trying to portray a certain image. And I realized, oh, I'm just trying to feel valued. Luxury things function to make us feel valued and seen and appreciated. And so instead of accumulating this stuff, which I can't afford, I just connect to the energetic expression. So that energetic expression begins to feed the sense of deep self-worth. And of course, that self-worth is about me wanting not to suffer and to actually experience ultimate liberation.
1: Okay, so let's go a step further and talk about desire and pleasure. You say that yearning is the first step in touching the divine.
0: So how have you learned to work with and
1: channel yearning?
0: Yeah, you have to want something. You have to want to get free. I mean, you know, and desire, yearning is the last thing we give up before ultimate enlightenment. Like that yearning for enlightenment is going to take us to the threshold. And to go beyond the threshold, we let go of wanting to get free, which I think will be a really hard choice, (laughs) you know, to make. But I am learning and training myself to yearn for what is about Freedom and liberation and fluidity and movement, not to continue yearning for the things that are about creating rigidity and separateness or aloneness necessarily in a way that feels like suffering, right? But I am yearning for the benefits of freedom. I can yearn more for that because the more I yearn and the more I practice, the more I begin to experience where freedom is. And so I know that, like, oh, this is what. I should be focusing on, not, not the rigidity, not all this other stuff, but this experience of getting open and clear and translucent and fluid. That's it. And so I just start yearning for it. In the same way that we yearn for our bad habits, we can start yearning for these experiences of liberation.
1: Yeah, one important practice of yearning, you say, is prayer. So first, can you tell us a little bit about the experiences of prayer you encountered growing up in church, and how did these experiences shape you, and how have you returned to them? Because I found it very interesting that Buddhism allowed you to return to this.
0: Yes. Buddhism gave me permission to embrace the value and the importance of my ancestry, primarily because I was trained by Tibetans. You know, not necessarily about Westerners, right? So my teachers were Tibetan. And I saw how they incorporated their ancestry, their culture into the practice of Dharma, which has given rise to Tibetan Buddhism. And I said, oh, I want to do the same for my ancestry because I kind of felt for much of my life a little bit ashamed having descended from enslaved people. I felt a lot of shame around that. And I think Tibetans gave me permission to understand that I am only here because of the practice, particularly the prayers, the spiritual practices of my ancestors. And that transformed my relationship to ancestry. But yeah, like I grew up in a culture of prayer in the Black church, you know, and that prayer was rooted in the reality that we were not free that there was a lot more to do before we experienced real freedom in this culture and that yearning to be free was on one hand beautiful but over time it just felt too heavy i was tired of yearning i wanted to do <laughs> like i wanted to actually do the things to get free which led me into the study and embodiment of like you know really quite radical social movements like the catholic worker movement and the black power movement as well so the yearning for me turned into a yearning for social liberation and when i came into dharma started practicing dharma in my 20s that yearning was like return back to this yearning of just ultimately wanting everything to be free you know not just black people not just queer people but everyone including the people who created a harm and violence us. everyone needed to be free from suffering and delusion and so that yearning is what I begin to channel into my prayers, into my praying with deities and rituals and ceremonies and so forth, that like my primary goal in doing everything is wanting people to be free. And my primary prayer is that everyone get free. You know, it was interesting. You, you
1: talked about at one point, with all this praying, we're still not free. So, so it left a bad taste in your mouth and you walked away from prayer. So I thought it was a really beautiful thing that through Buddhism, you were able to come back to it. That was really moving to me. But listeners may be surprised to hear a Lama talk of God so much. So how do you understand and relate to God?
0: (laughs) You know what? One of my agendas in writing the book, uh, like a a sub-agenda, was really speaking to Christians as well, because Christian is one of my root practices. Being here in the South, you know, I'm in Georgia and Atlanta, there's this culture of people really trying to integrate Christianity and Buddhism. And I've come back to a place where I understand this integration a lot more than I did as a younger person. And so I wanted to really offer this tool of integration for people. And it's been done before Thich Nhat Hanh did it. But I wanted to, again, offer this more contemporary integration. But my other agenda, too, was to really give context to the rise of Christian nationalism that's really impacting our country right now. I wanted people to understand that, like, it's not theology itself, it's people, (laughs) you know? Um, I wanted people to really have a clearer understanding of what God was from my perspective, which is just God is the expression of emptiness, space, and energy, and that Jesus was an embodiment of emptiness, just like our tokus, (laughs) you know, and Rinpoche's in Tibetan Buddhism. There's no difference for me. I wanted to offer something that I think could help heal many of us who were leaving the church with a lot of trauma, that God is actually this expression of liberation, not this expression of criticism and hate and exclusion, that God is always present as this experience of emptiness and space, which we can experience as deep acceptance or love. But I think it's important for me as a teacher to really disclose how I've been deeply influenced by multiple spiritual and religious paths, not just Dharma or Buddhism. And I think when I talk about young people, which is whom I wrote the text to, a lot, you know, you, you know, I, I was going to say us, but like <laughs> not necessarily that young anymore. But I think a lot of young people are really interested in integration of multiple paths. Well, certainly
1: you do that. I mean, your core seems to be Buddhist, but yet it is shaped and informed by the other traditions that you come from. You know, you mentioned Christian nationalism, and in contrast to the emphasis on masculinity and really any form of nationalism, you describe sacred masculinity as an awakened state of masculinity freed from patriarchy. So, what does this look like, and how can you come to work with the dualities
0: of what you call the sacred mother and the sacred father? That was so important for me to do in this work was to to kind of unbind masculinity from patriarchy. Because for me, again, this is about balance. When I talk about sacred duality, for me, it's rooted within the Heart Sutra of form and emptiness. It's form and emptiness that balance. And when I talk about the mother or the feminine, the, the mother or the feminine cannot exist without a balance of the masculine or the father, right? Of course, like systemic patriarchy has really informed or repainted the masculine as this expression of dominance. And so I am attempting to actually extract masculinity and reclaim it as a sacred masculinity that's not about dominance. This is about balance. You can get deeper into these kind of energetic expressions of the masculine. But for me, the masculine, it is how am I connected into the sacred balance with the feminine, with the mother, not to dominate, but to balance, to hold, to see myself as the mother as I'm embodying this kind of energy as the masculine or as the expression of the father. And so for me, masculinity is about fluidity and movement and openness. You know, it's it's about structure as well. I equate masculinity, sacred masculinity, with form and emptiness with the, you know, the mother. So it's easy to get confused about form. Form can get rigid without a relationship with the feminine or with emptiness itself. We're running out of time. So I want to ask one
1: more question because there's a whole chapter on it, in which you discuss the complexities of devotion practices, particularly in the context of abuses of power within your own lineage.
0: So can you tell us about your relationship with the Karmapa and how it has changed over time? You know, of course, my relationship to the Karmapa is that he's the head of my school of Tibetan Buddhism, the Song, or the Karmakagi school in Tibetan Buddhism. And I've been with the Karmapa quite a bit over the years, both in India and here in the United States. The Karmapa was the first teacher that I felt devotion towards. Like, that's the first time I felt devotion and I couldn't explain it. I just felt it as a deep falling in love with, a deep recognition that this person is like the most important person, (laughs) you know, in my life, an old relationship really that was starting over again. So familiar, right? And I wrote about my relationship to my root teacher, Lamanola Rinpoche, in my last book, Love and Rage, really trying to get at the conflict or the tension between devotion and calling out harmful behavior. But I don't think I went deep enough in that work. And so coming back to the Kramapa, I was like, okay, I have to like break through into this layer of helping people to really, particularly people outside of devotional traditions, to really understand like the tension that arises when we are committed to someone as a source of liberation and someone who we consider enlightened but also who have done things that created harm for people and how this kind of enlightened nature can live alongside acts of harm, you know, and really trying to unpack that. You know, and really getting into, like, some psychotherapy work, but, like, you know, thinking about the shadow, thinking about one's relationship to ego and how the ego, the sense of self, is important even for an enlightened being to stay close to because the ego is how we communicate. Like, there's, there's no teaching and transmission that could happen if ego was completely erased, you know, in a teacher's experience. There would be no, no interaction. I couldn't even register. This person, so we choose to stay in relationship to the ego, which is a risk.
1: Actually, one of the things that came through in that chapter for me was not so much an idealization; it was more that you were getting at his humanity, which is a risk. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so to close, I wonder if you'd be willing to read a prayer from the book.
0: Mm-hmm. Let me just pull that up on my screen. I evoke all those beings and sources of refuge who have ever loved me. To come sit with me, because it is now that I feel most alone. I evoke the Blessed Mother, the Sacred Father, the spirits of light, the essence of wisdom, my teachers and elders, the communities who have always caught me when I have fallen, the ancestors who have never stopped holding me, all the elements, including the sacred earth, who helped me to stand, and silence that wraps me in the space to be with my heart, and I call upon my own innate compassion. To all those I have evoked, I offer my grief and what seems like my perpetual mourning in this body. I offer my fear, my numbness, and my inability to dream beyond shutting down. Most of all, I offer my fatigue. I am tired. Today. Precious earth, let me lie upon you and be reminded of my body and my heart. I want many things, but I need only one thing now to give up to you what I cannot hold. I pray that I evolve past my belief that my pain is mine alone to carry. To my sources of refuge who have been evoked, you have taught me repeatedly. That this is not the truth. You have taught me that it is not my pain, but our pain. You remind me that my worship of isolation is not conducive to my liberation. I want to be free, and so I offer to you what I struggle to hold right now, knowing that you are only here to share this heaviness with me and to love me. I am afraid of the world. I am afraid of people. I am afraid of what I must do to survive in the world. Even these fears I offer to my sources of refuge. Today, my precious sources of refuge, in your love, offer me rest. In your love, never abandon me. In your love, hunt all others who feel lonely and tired. Please continue to hunt me in this life. And death, and into all my lives to come, until one day I become a source of refuge for other beings. Yet it is also my prayer to become a source of refuge for beings right now in this life. May I and all others in this realm and beyond be blessed forever. I dedicate this labor to my descendants who will one day lead me into my ancestorhood. Lama
1: Rod, thanks so much for joining. It's been a great pleasure. For our listeners, be sure to pick up a copy of The New Saints, available now. Thanks again. Thank you. You've been listening to Tricycle Talks with Lama Rod Owens. We'd love to hear your thoughts about the podcast, so write us at feedback at tricycle.org to let us know what you think. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider leaving a review on Apple Podcasts. To keep up with the show, you can follow Tricycle Talks wherever you listen to podcasts. Tricycle Talks is produced by Sarah Fleming and the Bomeret. I'm James Shaheen, Editor-in-Chief of Tricycle The Buddhist Review. Thanks for listening.